so you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Um, just some things in review. We're, we're getting to the end of the letter, and we've, we've spent a, a fair amount of Sundays now going through the letter. And just, just some things for, for review. Um, Hebrews is a letter that really is meant as the heading there suggests to fixate our eyes on Jesus and to understand how he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, John recently taught through Ephesians and something really struck me in Ephesians chapter 1 in Paul's prayer for the church that I think relates to this. Uh, Paul's praying for the Ephesians that they could be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that is God. And I think really that's what this letter is really intended to do. There are so many times when we're confronted with circumstances that the difficulty or the hardship or the sacrifice or whatever it is can make it so that we're not thinking with wisdom how do we navigate and discern our circumstances based on what we know about God and what we know about Jesus. And so this letter has been just a big sermon of exhortation and encouragement to the Christians here to really help them to see Jesus more clearly. We've mentioned that in the final part of the letter in verse 22, he urges them to bear with the word of exhortation. And we've talked about how exhortation is, is kind of like, in a literal way, to call someone to your side. But the goal of the letter, the writer is not trying to call the Christians to his own side, as oftentimes like Paul would do in his letters. Really, the goal is he's trying to call the readers to Jesus' side. And the way that he does that is he makes all sorts of comparisons in the beginning of the letter. Jesus in chapter 1 is greater than angels, Jesus, in chapter 3, the house that he builds is greater than the house Moses built. He's greater than Moses. Uh, in chapter 4, the rest that Jesus provides is greater than the rest that Joshua provided. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is a greater priest, a greater high priest. In chapter 8, there's a greater covenant. Chapters 9, there's greater blood. In chapter 10, there's a greater sacrifice. And then in chapter 10, verse 18, from where we started with applications, Chapter 10, verse 18 is where he starts to make application with those concepts, beginning with applications of faith. So in chapter 10, verse 18, he begins admonishing them, uh, I'm sorry, verse 19, chapter 10, verse 19, he begins to admonish them that with all that God has done, with everything that's been granted to us by the superiority of all things that's in Jesus, there's something we need to do. And so there's really two main things that he was exhorting these Christians to do that rumble through the letter and reach a climax in chapter 13. One is to listen. So he exhorts them continuously through the letter that the consequence of the great work that God has completed in Jesus and Jesus' superiority, the superiority of the covenant, there's a greater obligation to listen because there's a greater power in the words. There's a greater glory in the words given through Christ. And then the second main application is love. In chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it mentions that we need to consider each other, not forsaking assembling, but encouraging each other more and more as we recognize the day approaching more and more. So in chapter 13, we looked at verses 1 through 6, and we saw primarily the exhortation to grow in love in the midst of their circumstances. The exhortation we're going to look at is 7 through 14. We're going to have two more lessons on Hebrews. I was thinking about finishing things up in one lesson, um, but I think it would be helpful to separate out the rest of the letter um, in two separate lessons. So in verses 7 through 14, we're going to be looking at the discipline of discipleship. And there's really going to be three 
aspects of this that we're going to see. One is following godly examples. The second is following sound teaching. And three is following Jesus' suffering. We're going to see that in verses 10 through 14. Remember that the Christians here, one of the issues that they were facing is failing to have the kind of endurance in their faith that really is um, fundamentally essential to our understanding of Jesus and his mission. Uh, Just in the fact that they were told to not withdraw from each other, but to encourage each other to not forsake the assembling. In verse 1 of chapter 13, they're told to let love of the brethren continue. And in verse 7, but also verse 17, they're urged to follow godly examples. And so I think one, one thing that they were struggling with is in their withdrawal, they were beginning to withdraw from the godly examples that were both around them and had been around them in the past. So let's start with verse 7, and we'll look at this point with how the discipline of discipleship is at work in our following godly examples. This is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So back in chapter 11, if you remember it mentioned in chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In verse 6 of that chapter, it said, without faith it is impossible to please him. And there's been a multitude of godly examples that have already been outlined throughout the book. Obviously, Jesus' example is the primary example that's already been emphasized. But chapter 11, there was just a slew of examples through history that were given as examples to follow. But the Hebrew Christians had people who had led them and taught them in the past, and they were called to consider the results of the conduct of those who had previously taught them and to imitate their faith. One qualifier for this um, that I think is important is the writer is clearly not advocating preacher worship. Um, One error uh, that is very common in the world um, and we'll see this more in verse 8 through, uh, eight through 9. Common error in the world is exalting the teacher in an undue way and to an undue degree. Um, there's such a careful balance we find of this in the word. Um, but I think we see this obviously in churches that are centered around a single pastor and how the environment can often completely collapse when that pastor, quote-unquote, Um, leaves and goes somewhere else because really everybody was more focused on the personality and the presentation of this one person who really like began this like movement or whatever Um, so there's there's a balance to this Paul in first Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 he would say be imitators of me as I am of Christ right so obviously there's there's a way that we need to recognize faith in others especially the maturity of faith to imitate that faith but again, without, um, without falling into the trap of worshiping or over-exalting somebody in a way that is not consistent with Christ and faith. So with that, there is an importance of living examples. Um, again, with 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul sought to have his example be a model for the Christians in Corinth. We see that over and over again this morning in the Bible class. Uh, Glenn was talking about Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and Paul mentions things that he has a conflict with and choices he's making and he mentions things that are weighing on his heart. Later in Philippians chapter 2, he brings up Timothy, he brings up Epaphroditus as examples that he was convinced would prove to be like his 
to model the attitude of Christ. So we have to be aware of that. God entrusts his word to living examples. One more example of this, I think, is in Mark. We looked at Mark, uh, not this year, I think it was last year's summer series, wasn't it? Last year we did a summer series on Mark. And I think one thing that we looked at, um, and I think was talked about more than once, is how there's no sermon in Mark that's quite like Matthew and the Beatitudes. Luke has like long sections of teaching. You think about uh, the prodigal son. You think about Luke chapter 6, which is similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Mark, Jesus teaches in parables a little bit, but really Jesus' example is itself the sermon that we're uh, observing in the gospel because his life is the teaching. So when we see him healing, when we see him interacting with people, that is the teaching. We're following his example. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I think this really is in contrast, and Jesus really sits in contrast, to the religious leaders that he spoke against at the end of his ministry. Um, Matthew chapter 23. And with this point, I'm looking at Matthew 23, I just want to emphasize that when we don't have mature examples, or when there are examples who you know, had faith for some time but then fall away, the reality is, unfortunately, there is something that does get lost that does grieve God because of what's lost. There's a sense where we're being entrusted with a living word that's meant to be seen in living examples. So Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, meaning that they're like the teachers of the nation, right? Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Verse 15, he mentions that they travel all over the world to make one proselyte, which which just means that they're trying to find people they can convert to Judaism. He says when they find that person, and they convert that person, they're making that person twice as much a son of hell as themselves. Verse 13, it says that they're shutting up the kingdom of God and they're not entering in and they're hindering those who are trying. The point is, God has entrusted his word to be lived out. And so much of the reality of the teaching gets lost if it's not seen in our examples. And I think it heightens the obligation and the responsibility of following the teaching sincerely, genuinely, and humbly, and making sure that we're, we're taking care of this responsibility. So in Hebrews, it seems like these were people who knew God's truth. They, they knew what to do. They already were convinced about the gospel. So the problem is not knowledge. They had knowledge. But the problem was acting on the knowledge that they had and living it out in examples for each other, right? So what was the result of their conduct? I think there's a few ways to think about this. It may have been that they had a faithful attachment to God's people. It may be that these were people who have died and that there is a clear reward in their faithful endurance. Um, It could be qualities of their faith, like their kindness, their joy as they suffered trials. And I think when you're considering the, the outcome of their conduct, Really, the the clear thing, I think, is a separation from the world. That in Hebrews chapter 11, it ended the chapter saying that these were people of whom the world was not worthy. So these were examples 
where they were distinctly separated from the world around them. And what we're going to see at the end of this with that point of following Jesus' suffering, the exhortation is we have to follow Jesus outside the camp. Jesus separated himself from the world. Not in a way where he was not living in the world, but that he was not of the world. So what about when we don't have earthly examples like this? The Hebrews, they clearly had people that they could look to as models. And the Hebrew writer was aware of that, that they, they needed in their suffering to remember these fundamental lessons and examples that they already knew and at one time had been following. But what about when we don't have those examples, right? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Uh, I think there's an importance in this of remembering that God, in anticipating our need for examples, has given us examples in the word that when all else fails, we have examples of good, godly teachers where we can recognize the quality of a good example based on Paul's example. So look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Paul tells Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. So, I think Paul's example, again, not not going too far as to say that we need to be following Paul in, in almost like a preacher worship kind of way, but just recognizing that God has given Paul as an example of somebody who is genuinely really putting forth everything he had into imitating Jesus. And what did that look like here? Look at verse 10. Endurance. But there's a purpose. There was nothing that Paul suffered that he would allow to cause him to withdraw from the mission of serving God's people for a purpose. And that's what the Hebrew Christians were in danger of. Their suffering was causing them to withdraw themselves from that purpose. Look at chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. So Paul had endurance as an outcome of his faith, but I think, again, the joy of looking to the reward as a theme in Hebrews, we see that in Paul as well. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering for the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Remember that in Hebrews 11, verse 6, when it talks about without faith, it is impossible to please him. It follows that by saying, he who comes to God must believe, one, that he is, and two, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what drove Paul's faithfulness. He recognized that God was not unjust so as to forget or neglect to reward the things that he had commanded. And look at verse 18. So Paul, in thinking about the trials he had been suffering, how he'd been abandoned, even by his brethren at times of great need, he said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul's view of his relationship with Jesus was that even through every trial, Jesus would faithfully rescue him from every trial and bring him safely into the heavenly kingdom. That's the outcome of a man of faith. That is an example to follow. So even if we don't have examples like the kind of examples the Hebrew Christians were being urged to follow, 
we still do have examples that serve as a foundational, um, foundational model for us. Um, so we need to follow godly examples, recognize godly examples, and consider the outcome of their faith to imitate it. Um, let's look at verses 8 and 9 and the importance of following sound teaching. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the hearts to be strengthened by grace, uh, for the hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. So verse 8. Obviously, Jesus is our foremost primary example, and he's the example everything else is filtered through. All truth is filtered through Jesus. Every model is filtered through Jesus. But something is specifically emphasized here that I think relates to sound teaching. Jesus is unchanging. Go back to Hebrews chapter, or not Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 4. Something that's said at the end of verse 20 in Hebrews chapter 4. I'm sorry, verse 21. Hebrews chapter, or Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. It says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. It's easy to think about truth as more things that are right and things that are wrong, right? And that, that is obviously a large and necessary component of truth. There are things that are right, things that are wrong. Um, Glenn brought up, um, you know, Johnny asking for prayers with things that work in the LBGT community. Um, homosexuality is one of those things that's black and white. You know, homosexuality and its practices are, are sin. Uh, lying is sin. Sexual misconduct, fornication, adultery, those things are sin. And so there, there is a sense where in sound doctrine there are black and white things, but the fullness of the form of truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. So I think one application that we need to get from this, we need to be master disciples of Jesus. We need to understand what kind of emphasis did Jesus put in his teaching. What kind of ways did Jesus interact with people? What was he trying to do in his interactions with people? What do his commands look like? When he suffered on the cross, what was the mind that compelled him through the cross to have endurance? How did Jesus love people? How did Jesus think about people? How did Jesus view himself? We need to be pouring ourselves into a constantly deepening and growing uh, understanding and knowledge of Jesus. We need to understand the things that Jesus warned against. We need to understand the things that grieved Jesus. Um, nearly always I find that false teaching, more often than not, really misses fundamental aspects of the focus of Jesus' ministry. A few examples. Uh, there's a very common uh, doctrine. Um, most of you have probably heard of it. Once saved, always saved. It's the idea that once somebody is saved, you know, they can never lose it, ever. Um, Jesus' ministry and like fundamental things about his teaching speak really clearly against that. There's premillennialism, the thought that Jesus is going to return to earth to reign as a king to undo the mistake of the cross and then finally he's going to reign for a thousand years and then the nation of Israel be restored for a time. And just, again, all of that misses fundamental things about the gospel and Jesus' emphasis. A lot of false teaching thrives off of angry attitudes, unforgiving attitudes. A lot of false teaching relies on people just not being very connected to their brethren and being prepared to withdraw from one another. 
That's missing the point of the fundamental example and teaching of Jesus. So if we can understand where Jesus put his emphasis, not just in our minds, but by following the model of his example, it can be much more clear when we're hearing things that are against the primary focus of the gospel. It can be more clear what's going wrong. Another example, another couple examples. Um, Focus on miracles. I've met a lot of people who are devoted to a more um, Pentecostal uh, faith, And when I study with people like that, so often their view of what God's power is, is seen in miracles. So like Jesus Christ in verse 8, he's the same forever, and therefore there needs to be miracles today, the same way as in his ministry. But that misses the point of the context. It's not about miracles, it's about teaching, it's about doctrine, it's about understanding the emphasis of the gospel. Um, I think there can also be a constant desire for something new and innovative. So, you know, a lot of times with local assemblies, you can see this, where people try to do things that maybe are more emotionally driven because there's just a push against traditions that seem boring. Whereas Jesus, even in his ministry, he advocated even keeping what seemed like very boring laws of Moses. He would heal a leper and say, go do what Moses commanded. And when a leper was healed, there were some pretty um, boring things that they were going to have to do for multiple days to fulfill the obligation. So Jesus did not view traditions, even in the law that God had given, that he was fulfilling in spiritual ways. He didn't just throw those things away and talk about them like they were useless. So there's a sense of meager satisfaction, great satisfaction, with things that don't seem very emotionally compelling on the surface in Jesus's ministry. Um, So, One more thing about Jesus Christ being the same yesterday and today and forever before we look at more at verse 9. Sometimes in the way that people speak, it can be clear, as my dad calls it, that they're drinking from the wrong well. Um, Oftentimes I think people are taken away from the foundation of truth because they're listening so much more to sermons from somebody who's not even preaching at a sound congregation. They're reading material or commentaries And it's like they're not really reading their Bible as their primary source of truth. They're really reading the Bible as their secondary emphasis of truth and really getting their highest emphasis, their greatest emphasis, from a teacher. Um, I'll hear people talk, talk very highly about Joyce Myers, Billy Graham. And again, first of all, there's, there's fundamental things that these men get wrong in their teaching. But just the, the emphasis on a person rather than the gospel is a problem, right? And I think sometimes it can be easy to, to be so drawn to the way that people filter the word. And the word has this more meager appearance that takes training to appreciate. Whereas oftentimes how people filter it really doesn't need so much training to listen to Jesus. Think about his parables, right? Jesus was trying to train the disciples to think and focus their minds on meager teaching. You know, you think about his first parable with the seed and the sower. How disappointing that would seem if you're expecting some emotionally compelling, gripping sermon. And here he's talking about some guy randomly scattering seed everywhere and that's it, right? And Jesus would say things in terms of rebuke that were hard to hear. But again, he's training the disciples to listen. So the appeal is our primary source of truth We need to learn to think about scripture 
And anything else, I'm not saying that reading other things is bad or listening to other sermons is bad, but we have to be getting more more food, more nourishment from the purity of God's word. And we need to learn to appreciate what we gain out of God's word that cannot be gained from other sources that are simply filtering the word through their own lens, right? So we have to be drinking from the right well. So uh, verse 9. One of the key emphases of the gospel, um, look at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. He mentions that it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. Again, this is a fundamental aspect of the gospel that is, it's easy to overlook. But a big thing is Jesus in his ministry, one of his emphases, is that even a word? It sounds weird. His points of emphasis, one of his primary points of emphasis is learning to value matters of the heart. Learning to ask ourselves probing questions, learning to meditate on our condition and look within his own heart as reflected by his word. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 17. When he had left the crowds and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all the foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Why I struggle with giving in to sin is because I'm not getting to the heart of the problem. Pornography, again, lying, cheating, whatever it is, thefts, murders, pride, slander, deceit, sensuality, all of it, it all begins somewhere. And Jesus in his ministry was focusing on the root of the problem. And if we understand the gospel, we understand that the emphasis we need to have is how do we get to the heart of the problem? If we can get to the heart of the problem, not only will we recognize teaching that is not getting to the heart of the problem and not emphasizing what leads us to the heart of the problem, but we'll be able to recognize how do we get into our own heart the way that Jesus was trying to get his disciples to look within their own heart as well. This is also very similar to um, Colossians chapter 2. Um, Colossians chapter 2, 20 through 23. You know, one of the things that the Hebrew Christians may have been struggling with and something that I think the Colossian Christians were definitely struggling with, the Galatian Christians were definitely struggling with, is Judaizing teachers who were teaching going back to the law, which, you know, if you were thinking about external things and, and ordinances being the form of religion God is seeking, it would have a strong draw to it. But look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elemental principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Really, it's the same thing as what the Hebrew writer was emphasizing in Hebrews 13. 
There are things that people emphasize that although it may seem very religious, really doesn't get to the heart. Really is of no value to living a life that is not given to fleshly indulgence. So we need to learn how to ask ourselves probing questions. When we read the gospel, we need to read not just as an intellectual exercise or just getting a checkbox to get it done, but when Jesus asks his disciples difficult questions, we need to ask ourselves those same difficult questions. When we read Jesus' sermons, we need to think about where we are in relation to the teaching. When we see Jesus give a command, we need to think about ways we can be fulfilling that command in our own life. We need to learn to be putting ourselves in the position of the disciples and putting ourselves in the position as the direct listener in his ministry. Right? So the epistles also, such as where we're reading, give that same emphasis to only reaffirm the importance of those things. Um, so 10 through 14, following Jesus' suffering. We have an altar, chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So, to conclude the lesson, I want to think about this illustration um, visually. So, in verse 10 through 13, really 10 through 12, rather, there's this image of the high priest having the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement that's burned outside the camp. There were certain sacrifices in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 30. Any sacrifice that's brought into the most holy place, the priest would usually eat sin offerings. But the, the animals that were used for the atonement that involved the most holy place those animals were not to be eaten. They were only to be taken outside the camp and completely burned. So one point is we have an altar, we have a sacrifice to partake of that those of the law had no right to eat. So Jesus then, in verse 11, Jesus took the position of an animal whose blood was brought into the most holy place. Uh, you remember in Hebrews um, chapter 9 and 10, it's emphasized that Jesus, when he suffered, uh, in verse 24, didn't enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The emphasis is that Jesus did not enter the lesser room on earth. He entered into the true holy place in heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. So Jesus was sacrificed as a sin offering outside the camp, for us. And just as the animal is burned completely, Jesus bore our reproach on the cross and in a sense suffered completely to death outside the camp in verse 12 that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. So you think about what it's saying about being outside the camp. Really, I think the idea is going to the unclean place. What does it mean to be taken outside the camp? When somebody was made unclean, what did it mean for them to leave, for instance, Jerusalem? They had to go outside the camp as a consequence for being made unclean. What were they losing? What was happening? You know, what kind of condition were they experiencing? Well, for one, they're no longer a part of normal society. 
And I think that's one of the most basic points the writer is making. You know, they're not a part of the normal industry in the walls of the city anymore. They're not able to have the same associations that they had when they were clean. They're not able to participate in things like they once could when they were inside the city. So really, normal life has ended when they go outside the camp. Another thing is, their home was most definitely in the camp. You know, so they're having to go to a place where they're being stripped. They're not able to have the same comforts that they had when they were inside the gate. They're not able to have the same food they had when they were inside the gate. They're not able to have the same bedroom, the same living room. All of those things, they've been stripped of those things in order to go outside the camp. And Jesus took all of that to its fulfilled extent. Jesus forfeited the comforts and luxuries of heaven to go outside the gate. Jesus forfeited the luxuries of his own will to go outside the gate. Jesus suffered the loss of his heavenly position of associating with angels who would worship and praise all day long without break. And on earth, he suffered misunderstanding, loss of reputation. He suffered having to teach people who proved themselves difficult to teach or at times unteachable. Jesus was mocked, whipped, and stripped as we looked at this morning. So Jesus suffered the stripping of every privilege and comfort to go outside the camp. So in verse 13, what is the grand exhortation that's given with the illustration? Let us go out to him, bearing his reproach. Go back to chapter 10 again. I think in chapter 10, 32 through 36, we really have the reason for the letter. We have like the core problem that's being addressed in why this letter was written in the first place. He says, let's go out to him bearing his reproach. So reading this as a reflection, think about that idea of being stripped, losing reputation, losing comfort, losing privilege, losing other associations, but also the idea of going to Jesus to bear his reproach as well. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Look at verse 33 again. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Serving God, it is impossible to blend in with the world. It's, it's just not possible. And really, suffering for our faith can do two things. It can either push me to want to blend in as a sense of relief, or I can rejoice in verse 13 and 14 that by standing out from the world, by suffering the reproach of Christ, I'm sharing in his glory. That in verse 14, as I suffer losses in the present life because of my association with Jesus, as I'm stripped, in whatever, in whatever way comes because of my faith, I'm not really losing anything. Eve and I were just talking about this yesterday when we came back from Indiana. You know, we were just kind of thinking about all the blessings that God, um, you know, has given us that 
you know, we couldn't have anticipated. And we were just thinking about how losses that we experience presently, that when we understand what God does, if we understand God's faithfulness, if we understand where we're going, the mission of our faith, then we understand we never really lose anything. That if we're serving God, if we're committing ourselves to Jesus, when we have to make choices to separate ourselves from the world at times, we aren't truly losing anything. Those choices are only further investing in the stable foundation of what will never be shaken. It's the world who suffers loss by their refusal to submit to the gospel. It's those who are inside the gate who are deceived by the present form of things. And so we have to continue to press forward following Jesus' suffering and again remembering the emphasis of the gospel. Jesus suffered to sanctify his people. Serving the brethren can so easily become an exhausting burden if we're not careful to purify our minds by Christ's example. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to um, finish the lesson with, with this verse. But again, looking at Paul's example, and I think this not only embodies a model that we need to seek to follow, but it also models somebody who is following sound teaching, advocating sound teaching, and at the same time going where Jesus led him outside the camp in a way to fit the illustration. Think about Jesus suffering outside the camp simply because he was seeking to live out God's will to make others holy and pure before him. Look at Colossians 1 verse 28. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which works mightily in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. And that final part of that exhortation, we are called to have discipline in our discipleship, how we follow Jesus. Um, let's say a word of prayer before we conclude the lesson uh, this afternoon. Our Heavenly Father, God, please help and bless us to seek you wholeheartedly. Help us, Father, to recognize ways that we can draw closer to you and grow in our love and understanding of you. Help this church and the shifts and the changes that are happening with the brethren we love so dearly who are moving away from us physically. Bless Mike and Suzanne. Bless their family. Bless Mike in the difficulty of the transition being away from Suzanne for a time. Please help and strengthen them, God, that they would continue to grow in the fullness of your son and Jim, as he leaves with his wife, just bless them, God, to continue to grow in your grace, knowledge, wisdom, and bless them to have zeal for you, and bless Jim's wife to seek you, and to seek you out in a way that leads her to rejoin herself to your kingdom and to your son. Uh, bless um, Buddy and Tony as, as they depart as well to Columbus. Please help them to continue to have zeal for you and to your teaching, and please help them to, to be a blessing to the brethren where they go, and that they would root themselves more and more into the doctrine of your son. Help this church, Father, as 
um, we lose these, these examples that are among us of good deeds, examples of endurance and perseverance and love. Please bless us, God, that we would be strong in your grace and, and not be discouraged or demotivated from seeking you out, Father, but that we would have even more zeal to cling to your teaching and that we would, that we would know the truth, that we would root ourselves and anchor ourselves in Christ and his fullness, that we would locally as a church here be exactly what you've called us to be, Father, that we would not shift or deviate by the variety of teachings that are in the world or ideas even that can, can tempt us away from you. Help us to love your word, to love the simplicity of your word, to love the focus of your word, to love the outcome of your word by faith. Help us, Father, to have a simplicity in our devotion to Jesus, that our devotion would not just be to one another, that it would not just be to, to doctrine, uh, but it would be to everything that you are, to the attitude that was in Jesus, to the heart, the compassion, the mercy, the hatred of sin, the understanding of sin, the reconciliation of the cross, God, uh, what the local church is, uh, who we ought to be, the leadership you've designed for your church. Bless everything that you've willed for us to become. Please help those things to come here and to be in us and to be among us. Help us to love one another in a way that is devoted and enduring and help us, God, that we would recognize the glory of where Christ leads us, even when it um, at times requires the loss of things that we put our affections into. In your son's name, amen. Um, If there's anything that needs to be brought forward before the church at this time, uh, come forward while we stand and sing.